The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing The Infinite Vulcan. This is an animated series episode. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, folks, I want to suggest that you join the StarQuest fan club very easily by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's StarQuest to 66866. And when you sign up, you will be able to get uh, some emails from us and some behind the scenes and upcoming news and that sort of thing. So check it out. I also want to take a moment to mention another show on the StarQuest Network that you will definitely enjoy called The Secrets of Stargate. Yes, the Stargate shows, Stargate SG-1, Atlantis, Universe, uh, and whatever might come next. Origins. Uh, That's a dirty word. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, they're not going to talk about Origins. It's uh, just started, so you can get caught up really quick. Uh, It features our own Father Corey Stika, as well as Jack Barazzini, Lisa Jones, and Victor Lambs. It's a great time. Uh, there aren't a lot of Stargate podcasts out there, and I, I've seen a lot of people got very excited about the fact that you guys are doing this, Father Corey. Oh, we're, we're having a lot of fun doing it. You know, we're, we're, if you've ever wanted to do a watch through of all the Stargate shows, and maybe someday we'll do Origins, maybe it's a fourth uh, uh, April Fool's Day special. Um, but uh, we're going walk through all the way SG one all the way through. Once we hit Atlantis, we'll add that in. So it's 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 a great way to do kind of a walk through the uh, the entire. Set, set of series so come join us yeah it reminds me how much i love that that show uh mm-hmm. so you can find it at sqpn.com slash stargate or wherever podcasts are found but today we're talking about this animated series track episode called the infinite vulcan jimmy can you give us a recap of this story The team has beamed down to a planet run by peaceful plant people and while there the peaceful plant people take spot captive It turns out that some time ago, the plant people were going to impose their peace on the galaxy, but then a human scientist from the eugenics wars arrived on their world and accidentally decimated their civilization with a pandemic. We all know what that's like. (laughs) Uh, Fortunately, the scientist wanted to impose peace on the galaxy also, so he and the survivors teamed up. Uh, The scientist has stayed alive all this time, sort of, by making giant clones of himself and transferring his memories into them. Having determined that Mr. Spock is the ideal peacekeeping specimen, he's made a giant clone of Spock 2, known as Spock 2. (laughs) Unfortunately, the transfer of Spock's memories into the clone has left the real Mr. Spock dying. Kirk talks the giant Spock out of the idea of imposing peace on the galaxy, since the Federation is already at peace. And Giant Spock does a one-finger mind meld with his tiny counterpart, saving his life. In the end, it's decided that the giant scientist and the giant Spock will stay on the planet to try to rebuild the race of peaceful plant people who now no longer need to impose their peace on the galaxy. Right. Except there really isn't peace in the galaxy. (laughs) There's really not. (laughs) But we won't tell them that. Yeah. So... This was written by Walter Koenig, the mm-hmm. the guy who played Chekhov, who was excluded from the animated series. Uh, but 
And this was written before he was excluded. Yes, yes. Uh, he uh, yeah says uh, before the decision was made to, uh, as to who would be in it. And uh, I, do we know why Walter Kennedy yeah, was excluded? Money. Oh, money. okay. And initially, George Takei and Nichelle Nichols were also excluded, right. and Leonard Nimoy showed up and said, hey, where's George and Nichelle? And they said, well, we didn't hire them. And then Nimoy said, well, then you didn't hire me either. <laughs> but he didn't think to add Walter, apparently. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Walter was a latecomer, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, we had Mares replacing Uhura in some episodes, but uh, the, but uh, yeah, that's uh, she's check back. Off. And Eric's, no, replacing no, Eric's replacing Chekhov. Eric's replacing Chekhov, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, th- it's a very alien environment design as they are able to do in animated series. It's one of the things I really like about the animated series is the yeah. way they're able to do things like that. I, I really like the, the world building in this. And, I mean, we have this exotic looking planet with lots of plant life, but also, you know, they've got a city there that's falling into ruins because of the pandemic. But it's we've got this city it's being overtaken by the by the by the jungle so to speak mm-hmm. we've got several different creatures that are native to this planet that we meet one of them is called a retlaw plant which is walter spelled backwards it's <laughs> walter koenig's in joke he well in his, whenever he writes something he'll spell someone's name backwards and here he did it to his own yeah, but it's a little it's a little it looks kind of like a purple dandelion but it has it it can walk around and replant its roots in in the soil, and it's deadly. And at one point, it stings Mr. Sulu, which then brings out the second of the races, which are the plant people. They're called Phylosians, and they look, they're radiant life forms, which I really like. You know, mm-hmm. they don't have a normal bilateral body plan. They mm-hmm. They have arms that go all the way, which are like tendrils, that go all the way around their bodies. They have like four clusters of things that are kind of like feet that are splayed symmetrically around a central axis. And they have these heads that look kind of like green thistles or asparagus or an artichoke or something. And they're very alien. The least believable of the plant life forms we meet are these purple pterodactyls with tendrils on the bottom of them that they call swoopers. Yeah. And, and they're the least credible. But the I liked the Retlaw and the Philosians. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. Then I like the, the use of the word Philosian because, you know, Philos is a, I mean, it's related to the, the, the way we categorize in the Linnaean system. A phylum. Right? A phylum. Right. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a little reference there. I mean, there's echoes of a lot of different story tropes in here. Like there's the. Europeans coming to the new world and bringing a disease and wiping out the natives trope mm-hmm. that that we have here and the the pacifism we have the eugenics thing so there's a lot of different elements that he brings in to this story well it is interesting that the the, the uh scientist who was the eugenicist was actually you know he wasn't you know a raving mad you know con type character he actually had good ideas good good <laughs> uh intentions even if it didn't play out well yeah. He's sort of he's sort of the opposite of Khan in that Khan was a warlord and this guy wants to be a peace lord, which is mm-hmm. just a warlord with better branding. Yeah. <laughs> now, remind me. So his name was Stavos Caniculus. Caniculus. But some some actors pronounce it Caniculus. <laughs> it's like nu- nuclear. Uh, yep. Caniculus. 
Um, and he, so they said, I think it was, I got this. He was originally a scientist from Earth during the eugenics wars, like we said, mm -hmm. and was exiled for trying to build a master race for peace. Right. Is that what it was? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and he's also since that time, since his disappearance, he's become a figure of legend in the Federation under without the name Coniclius. Okay. Both Bones and Kirk have heard rumors of a modern Diogenes seeking the perfect specimen. And that's a reference to the Greek philosopher Diogenes uh, allegedly was like seeking an honest man right. and is often portrayed as like carrying around a lamp to light mm -hmm. his path in the search for an honest man. Okay. Yeah. okay. I, I, I was unclear. <laughs> On why the clones need to be giant. I know. <laughs> Apart I know. from the obvious. <laughs> really, this the giant clones is the is the. I mean, I, I guess the swoopers are a little this way too, but yeah. it, the swoopers and the giant clones are the only dumb things about this episode. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's actually a good story. Oh yeah. It's just inexplicably, why are the clones giant? I mean, I can understand you want to clone Mr. Spock a billion times to have an army of peacekeepers, fine. I mean, that's not really logical, but in terms of TV logic, it works. Mm -hmm. Sure. Why do they need to be giant? I guess because <laughs> they'll be stronger and able to intimidate people better, but that also just makes them bigger targets. Right. Well, also bigger resource. Uh, you have to yeah, feed them exactly. a lot more and build bigger buildings for them to sit in. Well, <laughs> and you know, Walter Koning missed a perfect opportunity to you know call it instead of Spock two Super Spock. Yeah. <laughs> should, should be Super I, Spock. <laughs> I also feel that yeah, the episode title is uh, is is overpromising. Mm -hmm. It the Vulcan is not actually infinite. It's just large. Right. I guess that the they're referring to the idea of that he will live on infinitely with an infinite number of clones. Well, yeah. then you don't put a giant Spock in your episode <laughs> if that's what you want people to interpret the title as. Yeah, exactly. It should be or Mega Spock. That would have been even better. Like they, yeah. it's a, Well, they, mega they did they did bring up the the IDEC, the infinite diversity and infinite combinations, mm -hmm. which is kind of the catchphrase for the Vulcans. Right. Catch yeah. ideal, I should say, for the Vulcans. And, and Kirk is able to talk uh, Spock two out of galactic conquest on that basis. You know, is if, if Vulcans aspire to have this principle that the world involves infinite diversity and infinite combinations, aren't you going to be interfering with that if you go conquer everybody? And that convinces Spock two to not conquer everybody. Although, you know, if I'm thinking like, Spock 2 could have been programmed, it would be like, well, we can still have our infinite diversity and infinite combinations, but that doesn't mean they can't all play nice together, and I'm going to make <laughs> that happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it is funny how they, like, hang a lit, like, they, they, they propose the, the problem that should have undermined Kirk's argument and never really answer it. Like, Kirk tries to convince them, there's peace in the Federation already, and they respond, well, what about the Klingons and the Romulans and the Kazinti? Yeah, we get a name check for the Kazinti, yep. which is very nice. And we'll see them uh, in, in the animated series. But it's like, yeah, what about them, Kirk? <laughs> we don't mm -hmm. actually get a good answer to that from him. <laughs> uh, he's been he's caught flat footed. And I love the fact that he, that Kenny just throws it in there and doesn't doesn't take it out, doesn't deal with it. It's just there. And I one of the other things I like to is the idea of like what happens to an apocalyptic mad scientist when his apocalypse has already come and gone? 
like the the apocalypse that he was trying to defend against, you mm-hmm. know, create this mad scientist sort of solution to the of, you know the eugenic wars and all this stuff came and went, and now the Federation anyway is at peace. And so, what does he do now? It's like he's, he's got a he doesn't have a job anymore, and so they have to find him a new job. Oh, so I like that. Mm-hmm. I also like the fact that there's apparently still a giant Spock out there on Phylos. Yeah, yeah. So there are a number of potential connections to previous episodes in this. One of them is, once again, we have Sulu's interest in botany. Yeah. Because at the beginning, when they meet the deadly dandelion, it's like Sulu, who's the one that's all over it. Right. And so I like that. And by the way, I like the fact that the plant people are using these electronic neck translators Mm -hmm. that they have around their necks. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they're using wearable tech. I think y'all ought to do a Secrets of Tech episode on those things. (laughs) (laughs) I like the fact that when they come out and they want to cure Sulu, Bones insists on medical tests for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, you know, wait, I can't let you just give him some alien dewdrop. Now, of course, really, Dr. McCoy would insist they tested on him. Yes. But <laughs> but I like the fact that he insisted on medical tests rather than just letting them do it. I I I also find it interesting the resonances that this episode has with the third season opener of the original series Spock's Brain. Yep. Where we again have an alien or other planetary planet that wants Mr. Spock for its own purposes. Mhm. In to run the planet. In the case they want Spock's brain to run the planet. In the case of Spock's brain, here they want the whole Mister Spock so he can become a peacekeeping force. But it's the same basic plot, and it it's tied into a similar theme. The ticking clock in Spock's brain is the fact that Vulcan anatomy is such that it's highly dependent on the brain, and even uh, 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 like a substitute artificial life keeping thing won't work indefinitely. So they've got to get Spock's brain back because of how tightly integrated. They can't just run the rest of the body with like blood pumps or something. Right. And here we have the same essential ticking clock. With Spock's mind transferred into the clone, his body is dying. And so they've put him on like a golden glowing six poster bed, Mm. which he (laughs) mysteriously is sometimes on, but sometimes not on the bed. (laughs) The animators were not always very uh, paying attention to continuity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they've got to get his uh, they've got to get his mind back in his body if he's if he's not going to die. And Caniclius says, well, I, I can't copy minds. I can only transfer them. But Vulcans can. Mm-hmm. Yep. They, they 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 so Spock just puts one finger on tiny yeah. Spock's head my mind to your mind, and he copies his own mind into him again. So we've got, you know, Katra manipulation going on here. Mm. This was not the first time in a thousand years anybody had done the <laughs> Faltor pan <laughs> ceremony or whatever. This is true. And, and once again, we have this, this erroneous idea that brains are things that can be copied and downloaded as opposed to, you know, like, like there's, they can only ever be one copy and then you, you remove the patterns from one brain and put it in another brain and the and the original brain doesn't have it anymore and that sort of thing you got to remember though this is star trek where you can't have more than one copy of a program you can't duplicate (laughs) a program you know like say uh uh, the voyagers emh you can't make multiple copies of him you can only have the one and it only exists on one system yep yep 
uh, yeah. I, I got a kick though, where they talk about you know, where, where Spock, giant Spock, does the the mind touch, and they call it that, the Vulcan mind touch, not touch, mind yeah. meld. <laughs> that was great. Also, I like how, uh, and everybody kind of like gets a little kind of character bit in this. You know, Sulu did, and Spock obviously does, and Kirk does, but McCoy. He, he, to combat the plant people and their swooper underlords or whatever, he, he mixes up a batch of his great granddaddy's weed spray, which they then use in <laughs> yeah. spray guns. Right. I mean, yes, they're, fu- they're futuristic looking spray guns, but they're using spray guns to put herbicide on these people and so, things. So the Federation endorsed chemical warfare. Yeah, it's uh, Agent Orange is essentially, which was not that far in the past when they when this came out. So yeah, this would have been familiar to folks when they when they saw this uh, the defoliants killing the swoopers. Yeah, and even Scotty and Uhura get get some some time in this, some screen time mm-hmm. in this episode. Uh, they having yep. to deal with the problems on board the ship. And 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 we've got some role reversal because since mm-hmm. Scotty is in charge on the ship, yep, Uhura gets to be. Th- Shoe blow apart, Captain. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, there is a, an interesting story behind Walter Koenig's participation in this one. For one thing, he wanted to do the voice of, of Stavos in this. He even auditioned. Mm-hmm. They came and had him come in to do a recording. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, they, you know, it turns out they never had any intention of hiring to do that. Even though the, the character design, the drawing of Koeniglius... Looks a little bit like Walter Koenig at the time. I don't see it. I read that same thing, and I don't really think Koeniglius looks like Walter Koenig. But well, unless know. he had that receding hairline, I, I, I don't know any have any pictures of Walter Koenig from that time. But uh, there is a Koeniglius has a receding hairline there, a widow's peak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought it was, and also that Gene Roddenberry had him do I think ten rewrites of the script. Oh. Mm. Yeah, but. Gene Roddenberry did that to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was an interesting little behind the scenes on that. So there is one thing mm-hmm. I just mentioned at the let's, very end. Let's see. Uh, he's going to go there. <laughs> Kirk makes uh, an inscrutability joke with Zulu. Yeah. Yep. That was um, it was so, interesting to see that from the 2021 point of view. So, Yeah. Sulu in the final battle like throws a plant guy using a some kind of martial arts move and and Kirk says you got to teach me that move and yeah. Sulu is the one that brings up inscrutability and says right. well you have to be inscrutable to do it and then Kirk says Mr. Sulu you're the most scrutable man I know right so so cultural background on this scrutability is the ability to be easily understood and interpreted. Um, inscrutability is the opposite. It's um, harder to understand and interpret. And the in in I guess nineteenth and early twentieth century stereotyping after uh, a lot of Asian immigrants started coming to the United States, their reserved manner was understood mm. in terms of, wow, those Asians are inscrutable. They're hard to figure out from their facial expressions since they they don't use them the same way as the native rambunctious Americans do. Mm-hmm. And so the inscrutable Asian person became a stereotype. And here, I, I find this interesting. Now, today's native impulse is 
for everybody in in current woke culture is to immediately freak out because we have a characteristic associated with a population. It's like, oh, no, we cannot associate characteristics with populations. Mm -hmm. But what I find interesting here is how relaxed everybody is about this. George Takei is the one who delivers the line that brings it up. And and he and presumably this is put in there by Walter Koenig as a nice moment for Sulu, Mm -hmm. where Sulu is effectively subverting the trope in a humorous manner by saying, oh, I teach you this move, but sorry, you got to be inscrutable. And and he's he's being playful with it. And it's there's no there's no malice here. There's a humorous subversion of a of a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, OK, fine. It's not it's not meant to be racially offensive. And there mm-hmm. are lots of parallel cases where, yeah, OK, even though something is a stereotype, it's not really meant to be offensive. Right. right. Think about the laconic image of the American Indian, you know, which is kind of similar or I'll, you know, doing one on me. Redheads have fiery tempers. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, any kind of, okay, who cares? <laughs> you know, right. let's, let's not right. be overly wound up and hypersensitive about every little thing. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I admit, you know, yeah. watching this with knowledge of woke culture, it's like, ooh, that's yeah. not, you know, that's not going to please a bunch of people. It's one of the things about reading, watching, you know, older entertainment or you know older books or whatever is is to to realize the time i live in is not the only time that exists and yeah. to see the things in the context of the times before yeah obviously there are elements of our history that we 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 shouldn't be proud of and that that right. we're it's, we're better off for not having certain things in our society of course but also sometimes there's a lack of perspective that people have on the way people used to deal with things and mm-hmm. and an assumption that everything in the past was as offensive then as it is now right or yeah. would be treated that way yeah recently i was watching a documentary about malcolm x and you know and his his assassination in 1960 in the 1960s and i'm watching archival footage of malcolm x and he's using the word negro mhm you know just like it's an ordinary thing which is what it was when I was growing up. It was considered a respectful term for people of African-American descent. Mm-hmm. It was a term they applied to themselves. It was just the normal term. And then I, I'm listening after that, I'm listening to a podcast and it's like, okay, this is going to have the word Negro in it. So everybody be careful. And it's like, you know, yeah. Well, and there's go there's, read Huckleberry Finn. They use oh no, the in, they can't anymore. Well, <laughs> in Huckleberry Finn, which is a pro African American novel, mm-hmm. they're using the N word a lot, and it is not meant to inflict pain. It right. it is it is it is it is very clear when you read. I mean, Mark Twain is is promoting African American rights in this book. And he's criticizing the slavery system. And when the when the N word is used, it's not meant to inflict pain. It's just obvious when you read it. It's not the insult of the type it is today. Well, there's there's a great danger when people 
judge past times by current standards. There is going to be a point in the future where things that are common today, that are popular today, that are accepted today, will be rightly judged. Mm. And not going to get political on which those are, but just there are things that I, I firmly believe that people accept and fight for today. A hundred years from now, they're going to be looking at the, us backward, you know, early 21st century Americans for doing these things, you know, and, and I don't think people who are so quick to look at like this scene with Sulu would immediately, oh, you need to, you need to ban the series because of this. Right. I don't think they realize that things they do now, people will be saying the same thing about them. Right. Or hopefully we'll over, uh, grow that impulse to want to cancel the things of the past uh, because of they, they, they right. might have not adhere to the the current standards of things um so uh yeah, i think i think there's something even uh, beyond entertainment that is valuable about enc- encountering culture in, let's call it animated series star trek the animated series culture culture of the past and, and and examining it on its terms and and accepting the good rejecting what we don't like but but at least examining it and examining ourselves so it, it's that's that's why I brought it up. It's just because I I know that it would that would be the sort of thing that might come up in certain conversations, and I thought it would be an interesting thing to discuss and maybe hear from listeners about if they have um, mm-hmm. uh, ideas about it. So let's uh, move on from there. Anything left to say about the Infinite Vulcan, Father Corey? I got a chuckle when they described the walls uh, of the the under the underground caverns as six hundred times denser than lead. I thought. Well, Stephen Moffat on Doctor Who must have learned from this and take it to the next level, like saying, you know, in hell, hell bent, it's, you know, 10 bazillion times denser than diamond. <laughs> right, right. How about you, Jimmy? Nope. Okay, let's uh, take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Dominic M., Jeff H., Chris N., Joseph B., and Gail S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think about the animated series episode, The Infinite Infinite Vulcan. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Next Generation episode, The Survivors. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, the Vulcan human blend of wisdom, sense of order, durability, and strength is the finest the Master has ever found. Hi, everyone. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. 
Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.